podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. Just before we start, I wanted to remind you that you can read our articles, explore more podcasts, and learn about our online personal and management development programs and workshops by visiting our website, www.worldofwork.io. All right, on to the podcast. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of a World of Work podcast. What are we speaking about today, Jane? So today we are talking all about storytelling uh, and organizational change. And we're going to be chatting to Suzanne Evans, who is from Feldspar Consulting and is currently undertaking a PhD in that topic. Cool. That's right. So we're going to be speaking about some of the more sort of process approaches to change and, and how um, maybe they're effective or not and the role that storytelling can can take in um, improving the way that we change our organizations. Let's get into the conversation. Great. Hi, everyone. So here we are in the main body of this podcast. Um, and today we're going to be speaking with Suzanne Evans about organizational change and some aspects of the role of storytelling within organizational change. Uh, but before we get into that, though, Suzanne, would you be able to introduce yourself and say a little bit more about yourself and your background to the audience? Yeah, I definitely can. Um, so hello, everybody. I'm Suzanne Evans. I am a consultant, a coach and a trainer, mainly focused on um, change management, but also on leadership development and organization design and development. I've been running my own business, Feldspar Consulting, since 2007. Um, but before that, I was a consultant in two big four um, change consultancies, Anderson and Deloitte. And I've recently completed a PhD looking at um, some of the reasons why plan change doesn't work in organisations. I use storytelling as a method, so gathered stories from people to find out how they were feeling about change. And I found out some interesting things about what, what goes on in organisations and why change doesn't always work. Lovely. And that's uh, a great background and, and really draws out why we'd like to explore this topic with you. Um, I guess as a starting point, we're going to try and navigate a bit through um, some of the foundations around organizational change and get us towards that storytelling point. Um, if we start off, though, in, in your words, I guess, quickly, what is organizational change and what is a planned approach to organizational change? Well, for me, organization change is anything that happens in an organization that represents a change to the way that people do their jobs. So it could be a technology implementation. It could be new patterns of work. It could be a new office. It could be a new car park. It, literally anything that um, reflects a, a change to the way that people go about their work. And plan change, I think, is the most common method of organisation change that most people are probably used to, which is you have a very structured approach to the change. Um, so typical models would be things like Lewin or Bridges, where you have a start and a finish, and, and in between you do some things. And if you do those things in the right order, then the change will happen. Um, another common model is the change curve, so the Kubler-Ross change curve. Again, it's a, a structured approach of the, the way that people might experience change. And with those models, if somebody, uh, I guess, in a position of um, decision, adopts uh, maybe a structured approach to change or thinks about change in a structured way and, and looks to introduce a change to an organisation um, following that type of approach, how does that feel for people in organisations? What's the impact on individuals experiencing the change? I think looking at it from the, the perspective of the person leading the change, it can be quite comforting to have a model that you can hang your hat off and, and think, well, if I do these things in the right order, then it's bound to work. I think for people perhaps who aren't 
don't have the understanding of the change, haven't been involved in all the meetings to talk about the change and why it's happening. I think it can feel very mechanistic, um, very process driven, you know, lots of project plans, that sort of thing. And, and I suppose a lack of opportunity for them to engage with what's going on and put their their point across. And in terms of what that leads to for overall effectiveness of these change programmes, are change programmes effective? I know that some famous books call out percentages of success rates <laughs> for change and all that kind of stuff. But but what's your view? How effective are these planned approaches to change? Well, it's interesting you say that because I think there is a, there's a 70% figure that's banded around a lot. Uh, yes, um, absolutely. Which actually has been mostly disproved. I think it was it was written in a book some time ago and then taken to be fact. But actually, I think that the research shows that change is often not successful. And that, that's due to a number of factors. Sometimes it's due to the fact that it's actually really difficult to measure whether something's successful or not, because how do you? Um, I, I think often it's not sustainable. I think, you know, you could measure change success on the basis of whether you bring the organisation with you or whether people understand the change and feel that they've had an opportunity to input. And I think on most cases, most change programmes wouldn't be deemed as successful if you use those measures. And I think a lot of people do find change very difficult. And again, that just shows that it's it it's not successful. These these measures don't work. The the planned approaches, there's something lacking. And a realization of that actually is what led me to do my own research to try and understand what else was going on in the organization that perhaps was unseen or hidden um, and, and wasn't being picked up in these these planned approaches to change. You mentioned the the idea of the unseen. And so it's probably a useful time to ask and bring in the idea of organisational culture. Um, and it would be interesting to know, what do you, what's your view on what, what is organisational culture? In my research, I use Shine's model um, of organisation culture, and he uh, sees it from a number of perspectives. So there's the sort of the stuff you can see, and it's, he calls it artefacts. For me, it's, it's the things you see around an office that tell you something about what it means to work there. So it could be photographs on the wall. It could be the way that the the office, the, the structure is built, what's in it, the way that people sit. Um, and that stuff's all pretty easy to, to, to see and to understand. Below that, he talks about values. And I think most organisations these days have a set of values that, that people within the organisation would be able to talk about. Again, underneath that, there's probably values that are less visible, um, that might be not necessarily the espoused values of the organisation, but actually why people go and work there and what makes them want to stay there. And then below that, you've got assumptions. And these these are the hidden parts. So these are the things that are going on in the organisation, but are not visible. They're not measured. And you can't get at them without spending time in the organisation and spending time talking to people in the organisation. So these could be things like the history of change. So all the different change programmes that have gone on in the organisation, what happened with them? What were the outcomes? What does that mean in terms of what people think about how change will work in the future? All of these things have a huge impact on the the success of a change programme. And yet they're actually quite difficult to get at. And they're definitely not looked at in in what I would call traditional approaches to change. And so it's it's so interesting you talk about that because James and I talk about context all the time and the idea that there's lots of models around, but they don't necessarily take a 
make make awareness and allowance for the reality of an organization's own personal history i guess where when you've sort of started to look at some of the stories and some of the things that have come out of organizations what where have you seen examples of where the culture has influenced whether change has been successful or not what sort of things do you see happening that make an make an impact on whether that change is successful within the area of culture um, so for example, the, the organisation I worked in as part of my PhD research is a very historical organisation. So it's it's been around well over 100 years, quite traditional in the way that it operates and the way that it's structured. And so there is a limit there, and this is recognised by the leadership in this organisation, there's a limit to what can be achieved. So something that in another organisation would be would be able to be introduced quite quickly without too much problem in this organization they'd have to think about it very carefully because they don't have a history of change um, the people in the organization don't have a lot of experience of leading change and a lot of the employees are unfamiliar with things changing so the story that I was told there was about um, getting rid of clocking in and clocking off I mean this is a sign of, of really quite how old-fashioned this organization is um, and this was only a few years ago and they felt that they had to introduce a pilot program in one team to see whether it was okay to stop people clocking in and clocking off with a card and actually moving to an electronic system. And people who were outside of the organization were amazed that they felt they had to pilot this thing. You know, surely it's a management decision. You could just tell everyone it was happening uh, and then it would happen. But in this organization, they'd realized well, that's not going to work here. We need to do something different. So having that understanding of the history and the way that that affected how the organisation operates directly led to a, a difference in the way that they introduced change. And you mentioned that earlier that like lots of people aren't even necessarily aware of culture or certainly you, I think you described the, the things below the surface as quite difficult to get at. Mm. Um, do you think then that when people are trying to create change in organisations, if they don't have an understanding of, what culture is and how it can interact with change, then they're creating sort of real barriers and challenges for themselves. Definitely. I, I mean, the whole issue of culture, I think, is, is quite challenging. It's, it's one of those things that everyone knows the sort of the definition of, well, it's how we work here, or it's how things are done here. But how, do, how you get below that is really hard. And even when you ask people in organisations, what's the culture like here? You'll often get different stories from different parts of the organization and I think this is where it's really important to get out there and talk to different people because the view of say senior management about what the culture is like could be totally different to how people experience the organization at ground level so by not having this understanding by not spending time talking to people and getting their view and their understanding of what it's like to work somewhere I think this is where organizations are really lacking not just with change actually but with all sorts of things you know building teams recruitment it's really important to understand what this organization is actually like beyond what is written down and what you can see you said there that you think that um leaders have maybe a different view of, of culture in their teams and things like that when we think about the role of leadership i guess in, in shaping culture or changing culture are there specific uh, types of leaders that are, are better placed to do this or, or what kind of um, methods or traits do leaders who are successful in change bring with them? There was some really interesting research about this, actually, some of it quite recent. Um, the, the need to be values led um, when trying to introduce change. 
where organisations often fall over with change is when they're trying to introduce something that is at odds or at conflict with the values that both they they espouse as an organisation, so the public view of the organisation, but also the way that employees experience the organisation internally, so what they value about being there as an employee. And if those two things are at odds, it's very, very difficult to introduce change. So I think leaders who are who are values-led in their own behaviour there's a lot of talk about authentic leadership as well. So, so leaders who can go on the journey with the the employees to share their own learning and their own concerns about what's going on, I think that can be very valuable too. With um, with regard to sort of leadership and culture, when a leader comes in, do they, by their very existence and presence in very senior roles, change the culture, or how does that dynamic work? Have you got any sense on that? I think it's an interesting one because often, and you you guys have probably seen this too, but if there's a big change going on in an organisation, it's often associated with new leadership, particularly at the top level. So the number of times you get a new CEO coming in and immediately there's a big programme of change. In a way, I think it's easier for somebody coming in from outside to create that change because they can come in with new ideas. They're not as affected by the culture or by the organisation but inherent in that is some difficulty in that uh, often such people are seen as outsiders and I found this a lot in my own research that to begin with during this particular change program I was studying these outsiders were valued as as somebody who had external experience but by the end of a, a pretty intense three years of change people who participated in my research were quite negative at that point about outsiders feeling that they didn't understand the organization and they tried to take the organization on a journey that they weren't ready for so I think it's a it's a real balance to be struck and the same thing applies actually to consultants as well as senior leadership I think as consultants we all have to walk that line between being that voice of of a different viewpoint but also lacking the understanding of the organization and how it it really is that that um, I think that's a great point. I, I used to work in change in a large organisation, and one of the things that I loved is that whenever we'd get new people together in a room to solve a problem, they'd all come up with an obvious solution and think that other people hadn't thought of that. And everyone's like, "Well, yeah, we could do that, but it won't work for this reason," um, because of that sort of history in there, which which is uh, so important within the context and and the way organisations work. We, we've talked a little bit about culture and leadership. Are there other factors that you think? affect the probability of a change to be successful? I think the history um, of the organisation is really important, but not only that in terms of culture, which we've already talked about, but also the history of change in an organisation and how much of that has gone on before. We all know about change fatigue, and and I genuinely do think this is something that people suffer from if, if they're constantly going through change programmes. Uh, I think so that that change history is really important. The other thing that I found to be interesting and important in my own research was this idea of identity. So how the employee sees themselves in relation to the organisation. And I found in my own research that that changes quite considerably over a period of a change programme. So people can move from being supporters of change to being resistant to change and back out again. And for me, that was something that was different from what I had, I suppose, grown up with, with plan change in that you might do a stakeholder analysis at the beginning 
and you'd expect people to fall into different groups, but you'd never consider that perhaps the views of those groups would be different depending on what was going on in the organisation and at different points in the change programme. So for me, that was a really interesting outcome of my research and something actually to think about as a consultant. Again, you have an identity. We touched on it earlier as an outsider. Your identity is different to different people in the organisation. And that's important for me to know as as a consultant when I go into an organisation, how they are experiencing me and how that then affects their experience of the change. A lot of the work that you're doing, your research reflects on or explores the role of storytelling in, I guess, <clears throat> pardon me, in organisations in themselves, but also in understanding some of this change process. Uh, can you say a little bit more about how you explore storytelling in your uh, in your research? Yeah, so organisations are seen by a lot of researchers as just being bodies of stories. Uh, I think story is a, is a funny concept. There's lots of different definitions of it. But for me, it's just about getting people's lived experience of the organisation and how it feels to work there. So in my research, I went into organisations and I did interviews, but I also did um, action research groups using appreciative inquiry techniques to gather stories from participants over a period of time. So I could see how um, those stories might change over the course of a change programme. I found if you ask people to tell you a story, people find it really difficult because I think there's a, a, I suppose people see it as a a creative process and a lot of people perhaps feel they're not creative enough to tell a story. Perhaps it reminds people too much of creative writing at school. But what I found was if if I used a technique a bit like you would in a competency interview, so to say, tell me about a time when or how does it feel to be in this organisation at the moment, you immediately get stories of things that have happened currently and in the past. I also got people to take photographs and then come in and talk about the photograph and what it meant. And I I got people to draw drawings in the moment uh, in response to a question, so just on a flip chart, again, to elicit that discussion. And you get such rich information from people, all kinds of events and things that have happened, talking about individuals in the organisation, but it gives you such a a deep insight into that organisation and how it operates that I I think it's a fantastic tool for research, but actually for for people in organisations more widely. And what what was the experience like for the people telling the stories when you were talking to them? I think they really enjoyed it. Well, I know they did. One of the things I did at the end was to ask them how it had been for them. So I'd met with these individuals over the course of a year and a half, quite regularly, probably every month or couple of months. And at the last session, I played back to them what I'd heard. So the key themes. And that was really interesting because whilst they agreed that that represented the discussion, some of them were quite surprised at how things had moved on and developed. They hadn't realised. There was also a feeling from quite a few of the participants that they'd never had the opportunity to share these stories before. No one had ever asked them for their view on the organisation. So it was a really valuable experience for them to have their voice heard. And I think thirdly, what was valuable for them was the opportunity to work through some of their feelings about change. So there was there was a lot of fear in the, in the group that something was going to be lost in the organisation because it was becoming like every other company in its sector. And by being with a group of their peers and talking it through, they realised that they all felt the same, but also that perhaps it wasn't going to be as bad as they thought it would. So it was almost like like therapy or coaching 
from their from their peers, which I think they all found it to be a really valuable experience. So just that bit, I'm really interested in that bit at the end. So do you, did you get an an idea that maybe they were actually using the process to make sense themselves of what that change meant for them or for the organisation? Definitely. I think there was one one story really sticks out for me. So um, talking about the fear in the organisation and how they felt, this one particular individual started talking about um, the year 2000, you know, Y2K, and how that had been built up and built up and built up in everyone's minds that it was going to be terrible and planes were going to fall out of the sky and everything was going to stop working. But actually, in reality, it was fine and measures were taken and it was fine and everyone got through it. And this particular participant said over the course of of the working together in these workshops, he'd started off feeling very negative about change and and concerned about what was going to happen. And by the end of it, he'd realised it was going to be a bit like Y2K and that it would be painful and things might change. But actually, in the end, it wouldn't be as bad as he had thought. And he said he never would have got to that realisation without the opportunity to work through his story, the stories of others in this in this process. So I think you're right. It's very much sense making uh, and having a chance just to talk and to share and to be heard. Yeah, I think the uh, the power of being heard and having that opportunity to use your voice is is pretty amazing. Um, so it sounds it sounds certainly to to sort of the listener like story uh, storytelling and story making. Um, is a really quite actually a powerful tool beyond what you were using it for as research um, and far more than that. So have you got any suggestions of how organisations might go about using and list, uh, either listening to stories or using storytelling um, in their change programmes to maybe help employees or support them through the process? Yeah, I, I mean, storytelling is hugely powerful in organizations and it's and it already exists in most organizations you know you think about any training program an induction program it's all a transmission of knowledge you know stories are told information is is given it exists in organizations i think the key learning for me from my own research and what is lacking often in change programs is having the ta- these times these opportunities to pause and reflect So instead of rushing straight into a change program, doing your your stages of change, and then at the end, you might evaluate how it went. I think what I learned and what I will do in future when I'm working on change myself is to take regular pauses to have these sorts of groups where people can talk about how they're experiencing the change in the moment. And then you can change things accordingly. You can adapt Interestingly, the the organisation I did my research in, they adopted this as a method of of a major technology and process change just after I'd finished doing the research. And after six months, they paused, went back out to the stakeholders, asked them to tell stories about how they were finding it, develop some themes, and then use that to adapt and adjust their communication mechanisms, the content of communication, but also to adjust the program of change, so the the speed, the activities. And they found as a result of that that the change was much easier to introduce, there was less resistance, and they were able to actually get it done quicker, even with taking a pause, because they'd brought people with them. And I think the key thing with that is to take the time to pause, but also to speak to and include as many different people as you possibly can so not just the usual suspects, not just 
people at the top level, but people from right across the organisation who are being impacted by the change, get managers to do it with their teams and then feedback what they find out, but get as many people involved in the process as you can. And going back to what we were saying earlier about being heard, this gives the opportunity for the a much larger number of people to be heard than would be in a traditional change programme. It, it feels like what's being described is this lovely combination of a process through the storytelling or asking of stories that, that allows the eliciting of useful, insightful data, but is also part of a change process itself. It's, it's like it's doing two things at the same time. Does that, does that seem fair? Yeah, definitely. And appreciative inquiry as, as, a, as a model is very much about that. It's about creating change. It's about v- focusing on what can be valued and, and getting the best of what is. And that's that's the typical quote about what appreciative inquiry is. So it is about creating change within itself. I think the worst thing that, that this process could be seen as, or what I'd hate for it to be seen as, is just an opportunity for everyone to sit in a room and have a bit of a chat it's much more meaningful than that, but it does need to be driven by an agenda and a process um, behind it so that it, it becomes something meaningful and, and, as you say, change in its own right, which then creates interesting and useful content that can be used in the change programme. I think the other thing that's really storytelling is really useful for is, is for leadership and for leaders to, to talk about their experiences, to share information doing that using a story is far more effective than just presenting a series of slides with information on, for example, if you were talking about strategy. Uh, So to actually use some of the messages that come out of the workshops with people and then build that into communications would be so powerful. So I've got another question. When you're going out and engaging with people and connecting with more than the usual suspects, as as you said, is there any sort of thought on uh, the number of people you need to speak to or who you need to to engage with to have this be a meaningful, supportive uh, process? I think it would really depend. And I know that's not actually that helpful, but I think it it depends on what what the change is, how many people in the organisation it impacts. And whether it's just one department or everybody. And I think obviously time as well. So recognising in organisations, everyone's up against it. You haven't got time to be doing lots of these sorts of things necessarily. But this is where I think it doesn't have to be something hugely formal. I think even in a team meeting, if a manager could introduce a question at the end of a team meeting about, eliciting some stories from people about how they feel and then feed those back into a a central repository of of this you know through the internet or something like that that is better than not doing anything at all so I think if you can try and reach as many people as you can in whatever means is going to is going to be most feasible then that's that's the way to do it and you said earlier that the you know the reference to appreciative inquiry is that there should be a process around what you're trying to do with this or, or a bit more of a, um, an intentional approach to what you're doing. Are there risks around doing this? If somebody just went out and tried to gather stories, or would, are there pitfalls they'd fall into potentially? Or what's your view on that? I think, as with a lot of these things, if you go out and ask people for their views and their opinions, you have to show that you're doing something with it. It's a bit like you think about in, in the supermarket, you know, you have the you said, we did board in a supermarket to show that when customer feedback is received something happens 
equally in this situation I think something similar needs to happen so if people are giving up their time and talking to you and and sharing their their views of the organization and often very personal things they have to feel like it's been worthwhile it's been done for a purpose so they will need to see that they've been listened to and that something happens as a result equally I think it's about creating a a space that feels safe for people to do that so in the work that I did, there was a lot of contracting up front about the fact that people are going to be sharing of themselves in these conversations. So we need to be mindful of that and not share confidences that might have been discussed in the group. So there's a risk there um, that people might not feel safe to do it. It might be difficult to create that kind of environment. Um, I think as, as a facilitator of these sorts of things, it is about creating that space where people feel they can be really open. Um, I've just got a quick question because I think I think your point about facilitation is really both powerful and important. And I was wondering if you have any views on whether it would be worthwhile organisations investing time and energy in in their own leaders, but also their own general staff in having skills to facilitate conversations like this beyond uh, either external or internal traditional change makers and the kind of people who'd normally be involved in these projects. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, that the skill of facilitation is subtle but important. I, I found in these research groups that I did, I had to take a real hands-off approach, but still had to have that sort of guiding hand on the tiller so that, that it didn't end up going off on a tangent. We only, in each group we met for about an hour and a half, recognizing people's diary. So I had to sort of keep control of it, but equally. I wanted to allow people to be free to talk about things without a particular agenda. And that takes, I suppose, skill as a facilitator to be able to do that. Um, And not everyone has that. I mean, it's luckily for me, it's something I've been doing for a long time, you know, for 20 years. But for people within organisations, it's perhaps something they're less experienced at. And I think people would absolutely have to learn how to do it, but also have the confidence to be, um it's uh, I was reading something the other day about it's being a weak facilitator although that sounds terrible it is about being confident that you can take a step back and that things will turn out as you want them to um plan tight hang loose I think is the way that it's said in appreciative inquiry so you you plan for where you want to get to but in the moment you hang real really loose and you allow the conversation to to take its own path that's really interesting I, I like that phrase um, <laughs> yes it's my, it's my motto it's <laughs> yeah, nice Um, I think we've covered a range of things that people might do differently in organizations. But if we um, if somebody listening is, say, uh, uh, middle to senior management in an organization and is going through some change or about to go through some change, have you got any thoughts on what they could maybe do differently as a result of what we've spoken about today or insights they could take away that might be practical in, in the near term? I think the key thing for me is just to keep talking to people. I think uh, that whilst I'm not a fan of planned approaches to change, I recognize that they have their place in organizations. So in all of my work, it's not about saying, let's get rid of those as models. You know, let's never do a Prince 2 model of change ever again. It's about what we can do on top of that. So knowing in organizations, they'll continue to use these these approaches of, of structured change. It's about adding something to that so, so that you get the richer picture of of change and you have more opportunity to take people with you. So any opportunity to talk to people, to find out how things are going, how they're feeling, 
what needs to be different, what can be improved. I think that's something that every manager should be building into their their daily, weekly life. Again, looking at appreciative inquiry, it's always focused on the best of what is. So not trying to identify problems, but trying to identify solutions and, and just different ways of doing things. So I think managers need to be doing more of that all of the time. And the other thing is to think about sharing more of your own story as a manager and a leader with the people who work for you. Again, to build engagement, to look at authentic leadership, which is becoming really important, particularly post-COVID, I think, in terms of of organisations that can be valued by customers, but also by their employees. So think about how you can share elements of, of your story as a leader and how that could be relevant to the situation, how people might find it interesting, how that might improve engagement. Um, But mostly, I think it's just having conversations. So much of my work keeps coming back to the necessity of having open and honest conversations within organisations. And it's something that seems to be really lacking. That's great. Um, I think there's some great advice in there. Um, Unfortunately, we're kind of getting to the end of our time. Uh, So I think we're going to wrap things up. But before we go... Could you uh, share a little bit about how listeners could learn more about you and, and what you do and maybe find out a little bit more about um, about your work? Sure. So um, you can take a look on my website, which is feldsparconsulting.com. There's loads of articles, blog posts on there. I've also got um, my own podcast, which is Change Stories, um, where we talk about everything to do with organisation change. And you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Suzanne Evans. It's Suzanne with an S, S-U-S-A-N-N-E. E-V-A-N-S. Lovely. Well, hopefully people get in touch. Um, and it's just time, I guess, for me to say thank you very much. That was excellent and really enjoyable. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you're back in the room with us. That was our conversation with Suzanne. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. Some really great stuff in there. Uh, Jane, did you have any key takeaways or reflections? Well, aside from the uh, somewhat overexcitement I have whenever I talk about methodology and research, data analysis, stuff like that, uh, I think the thing that really struck home to me was about the use not just to understand what's going on, but to allow people to make sense of their own experiences. I think that's incredibly powerful. Um, Whether or not it impacts, obviously it's really helpful if it impacts the change process, and they may well have really important things to say about how to take stock or to change direction but even in itself the pausing and the making sense of what's going on allows I think for significant cognitive adjustment to the process and I think that's really powerful particularly in long programs. Yeah I I totally would echo that that's exactly where I would have gone with that conversation as well it's so um it's so powerful and it's so human and it's so I guess considerate to the entirety of the people that we're working with when when we're delivering organizational change. Um, so I thought that was good. Another thing that we didn't really explain in there, but I think is, is worth calling out is the, the benefits of appreciative inquiry is that process for conversation as well. And I think helping people focus on um, what good looks like and, and what good practices and, and all the things that they do appreciate provides a really good uh, framework through which to address conversations like this in a productive way. Yeah, I think... Um... It's interesting, isn't it, really? So on a slight side, James and I were talking this morning when we were working through some work we're doing for uh, one of our upcoming seminars, and we were talking about this kind of merging of the understanding of people in organisations and learning from other areas like social sciences and sociology and counselling and all of these things. And I do feel like there's something around 
storytelling and sense and, and sense making that that feels important in this space beyond the sort of traditional idea of just gathering data, which I think is powerful. Yeah, it's really about cross disciplinary approach that that I think leads to some better results in this situation. Yeah. Cool. Great. All right. Well, that is another episode all there for you. And we'll be coming up with some more exciting ones over the coming weeks and months. So until then, I think it's just time to say goodbye. Yeah. And a quick reminder from me, don't forget to check us out on Twitter and see what we're up to on our latest Eventbrite page where we list all of our upcoming open seminars. Uh, And otherwise, it's goodbye from me too. Take care, everybody. Catch you soon. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.